Hello and welcome to Three Worlds Podcast, episode 18. Now, I'm re-recording this some years after the original episode 18 went out so that I don't get all the numbers all mixed up and have an episode that is deleted. Um, When I listened back to episode 18, I found that it was a short episode that was just about Sacred Hoop magazine, and it really wasn't very relevant and it wasn't very interesting. So what I'm doing is that I'm going to put half of a talk given by Dr. Charles Ramble, which is a terrible name for somebody giving a talk. But there you go. Uh, Dr. Charles Ramble, it's a talk given in 2010 in London by the University of Oxford. And the talk is all about um, Tibetan vampire slayers, which has nothing to do with Buffy, but could well be. So I hope you enjoy it. I found that uh, episode 20 was also just a ramble about Sacred Hoop. So I'm going to put half of the talk on this one, on episode 18. And then the second half of the talk will continue on episode 20. So I hope you enjoy it. So this is Dr. Charles Ramble, rambling on about vampire slayers. So we're in uh, an area of Nepal. But Nepal, of course, is ethnically and linguistically extremely diverse. And um, much of the northern borderland of Nepal is populated by um, ethnically, linguistically uh, Tibetan populations. Uh, And it's precisely one of these populations, or rather a very small community in one of these areas, uh, that I'm going to be talking about. Um, I'm going to be talking about a ritual for uh, the slaying of a vampire. (coughs) I saw this ritual for the first time in 1982 when I was doing my doctoral fieldwork. And not in this village, but in uh, one about two and a half hours' walk from here. Um, I just remember it being a very spectacular ritual, and uh, it was very complex, and I didn't really know what was going on. Um, But the the background to it was this, uh, that the lady in the house where I was living um, had had a child a few years previously. Uh, The child had died of measles at the age of two. A few years later, she had another child, and that child also died at the age of two, two and a half. And while I was there, she became pregnant, and the child was born dead. And it was uh, concluded in the village, I'll tell you a little bit more about the village, that uh, this was the work of a vampire, and uh, a subjugation had to be carried out. So the ritual was uh, performed while she was pregnant, and it was extremely spectacular, and it was straight out of Dennis Wheatley, as far as I could tell, involving skulls of animals and trigrams and um, um, uh, stars and uh, pits in the ground and so on. So you know, it's not the kind of philosophical, liturgical thing that one tends to associate with uh, Tibet. Um, more recently, um, I started to work on these uh, rit- this category of rituals again. These apotropaic, exorcistic rituals belong to a certain uh, category, rather low down in the hierarchy of rituals that are performed by Buddhists and the followers of the alternative Tibetan religion, which is mainly what I'm talking about, the Pern religion. Um, to all intents and purposes, the two are pretty much interchangeable, at least for the purposes of uh, today. Uh, rituals, of course, are extremely complicated, but I'm going to try and spare you all but uh, the necessary uh, detail. It will, however, I'm afraid, be a rather ethnographic uh, paper. However, I will try to um, align it with some more general anthropological considerations. 
So the community in question, again, not the one we're looking at, but the one behind my back, so to speak, um, is, or rather behind your back, I suppose, um, is a community, a very small community, of all hereditary priests of the Pan religion. Uh, these are not monks. This is a type of priesthood that goes in the, main, in the male line. So they are literate, uh, and they work mainly as client priests for neighboring communities. Uh, uh, communities will call them up to say, you know, please, you know, we seem to have a trouble with some type of ghost or, or something, can you come and deal with it? Or they'll uh, perform annual fertility rites for the communities in question. Anyway, I started to work on this corpus of rituals uh, that uh, is performed by one of the priests in this community. There are about 80 rituals in a volume uh, of around 900 folios. And I started to uh, read some of these during my last sabbatical, and I wanted to see how they were performed. So I was going back to the village and filming performances of the rituals, and I was very curious to see when the priest might uh, once again perform one of these vampire-slaying rituals. Um, <clears throat> and he said that he didn't do it anymore. I said, what do you mean you don't do it anymore? There's vampires all over the place. People had always you know, told me about vampires. Well, I don't do it. I said, why not? He said, it's bad. Um, so come on, uh, why is it bad? So he came up with some um, not very credible explanations uh, about why it was bad, but it was very clear that he didn't want to do them anymore. He'd become extremely ambivalent about the whole thing in the intervening 25 years or whatever. Uh, I repeat that there was no lack of demand for this. Uh, the reluctance was entirely on his part. <clears throat> um, what I want to do in this paper is to make a very tentative suggestion about why this reluctance might have come about. There are obvious reasons, and there are less obvious reasons, and of course I'm going to go for the less obvious reasons, um, and I'm not 100% convinced by my own argument, but uh, I'll put it out there. Let's say it may not be a cause, but I think it's a significant uh, correlation. So eventually, a couple of years ago, uh, this lama's wife's brother died. And uh, it was concluded that uh, his death was indicative of the presence of a vampire. Uh, the widow was pressing uh, the lama to perform the ritual, and uh, the general consensus in that community, which is the one we are looking at, was that this was the work of a vampire. Okay. So, eventually, after two years of shuffling his feet, he eventually acquiesced. So here he is uh, with the widow, um, his uh, brother-in-law's widow. Uh, and the, uh, let me just say a few words about uh, the term vampire. The Tibetan word for va I'm going to try and avoid the use of Tibetan terms as much as possible. The term vampire for this category, which is pronounced either si or she, uh, was coined by a British Tibetologist called <coughs> David Snowgrove uh, back in the 1960s or 70s. And I think it's a very appropriate term. You can tell the kind of demon that's at work in a Tibetan uh, community by the, uh, by the symptoms. So, for example, you can tell... Well, most of these things are invisible, but you can tell the effects they have. So serpent spirits cause, uh, cause skin disease. Uh, the Zar spirits, which are uh, the uh, planetary uh, demons, uh, they cause um, strokes and paralysis, and the Dern demons cause insanity. So as soon as somebody starts to manifest these symptoms, then you, it's a pretty safe bet that one of these demons is involved. Uh, she vampires are responsible for serial killings. 
and they kill certain categories of, um, uh, of entities. There are nine categories, this is all thoroughly described in the literature, there are nine categories, and the most dangerous and prolific are those that kill babies. And indeed, the word shri is a word meaning baby, so the whole concept is quite terrifying. Um, there is also another category of people who are killed, and those uh, it's a serial death in uh, young and middle manhood. And that was the case with the widow's wife. She was actually not too distressed that the man had died. Uh, he was a terrible, violent alcoholic uh, who got um, hepatitis but kept drinking and uh, eventually uh, was no longer able to beat her up. But um, she uh, locked him in his room and he eventually died. So everybody was uh, rather... <laughs> relieved about this, but the point was that it was the third death in a sequence. His uh, younger brother had died uh, the previous year, and his older brother's son had died uh, two years before that. So better get rid of the, uh, the vampire. So uh, I think that's all we need to know by way of background. Um, okay. So what I'm going to do is to talk you through the, uh, the ritual, you know, what happens, and uh, read two excerpts from uh, the text, because that's actually quite relevant to the understanding of it. So there's um, a very rich set of ingredients uh, that go into this, uh, this ritual. First of all, uh, since this uh, vampire is invisible, it has to be embodied. So that's my concession to the theme of this uh, series. I think it has to do with bodies. Okay, so it has to be embodied. And there are two um, physical embodiments of it. One is this print of paper you see here, which is used very widely in exorcistic rituals. It's called a linga, obviously a Sanskrit term, which has come into Tibetan to mean something else. And it can be the embodiment of any category of demon, which is then treated horribly, you know, burned, whatever. Um, so here is the Lama preparing it. And the ingredients uh, require for the whole ritual, well, actually specifically for the, the paper linga, poisonous paper, it says, uh, half a cubit in height, a pen, a wooden or bamboo pen, that has been made from an arrow that has been used to kill a wild man, which could also translate as yeti. Uh, the ink is made from the blood of a bear that has been killed with a sword. Uh, three types of blood. The blood of a bear that has been killed with a sword, a mule that has died from poisoning, and blood from a mad dog. Um, he admitted that it was quite difficult to get hold of these things. Um, but that it was permissible to use substitutes in certain circumstances. So, in fact, what he's using there is the heart blood of a yak to paint this, uh, this effigy with. It's a block print, uh, which is then painted over with red. And then, in addition to this, for certain categories, you need skulls. Uh, so, ideally, you have a tiger, a yak, and a wolf skull, a monkey, goat, and dog skull, and bird, weasel, and rat, nine and all. And uh, the subjugation, the text says, should be done together with the jaw. Um, for this particular category of ritual, we didn't need a skull. Um, just a dog skull and a weasel skull would have done, which is how I saw it performed the previous time. Uh, but you do need uh, a yak's horn in which to um, imprison uh, the vampire before burying it. Um, the subjugation done with the jaw, draw a crossed thunderbolt on the forepart of the skull, and a cross of swastikas on the occiput. And uh, the text very helpfully gives a little illustration of what this should look like. Okay, so you have the cross thunderbolt, trigrams, uh, various inscriptions into that, and there's this cross of uh, reverse swastikas. There's the detail of it. And this is um, 
the embodiment of the vampire. Um, the base for the ritual is this thing over here. It's uh, a six-pointed star uh, sitting in a circle of nine assistant vampires. Um, and then there's a second embodiment, which is this uh, doe effigy. So he makes the doe effigy of the vampire. It's imprisoned within a triangular pit. All this is fairly standard stuff in South Asian exorcistic rituals. Uh, and the belly of this creature is turned into a candle. Yeah, well, uh, uh, what would say, a butter lamp. And molten butter is poured into it, uh, red molten butter, to symbolize uh, the blood inside the vampire. And then there's um, a circle of, should be 18, but uh, I think I counted something different, um, 18 sticks representing a, a poisonous palisade. It's actually berberous wood. And then there's a lid representing Mount Sumeru, which is plonked on top of the whole thing at the end of the ritual. Okay, so uh, these are the two embodiments of the vampire. And then the final effigy, the main effigy, there are lots of other things going on on the altar, but they're not too relevant to us now. Yeah, so this is the, the finished product over here. Uh, things to note, uh, these are the nine assistant vampires, these crosses of Berberus wood. Uh, there are pieces of stone that have to come from an avalanche. They can't be just any stone. Uh, the triangular pit with both the effigies inside, with a three-dimensional one and also the paper print, wrapped around with colored thread, quite important, and two feathers, one of them uh, from an owl and one from a crow, because owls and crows fight, and this is a conflictual ritual, so it represents conflict. And then at the top, there's an effigy that I'll have a little bit more to say about uh, a little bit more to say about later on, uh, propped, on uh, propped up on top of uh, three arrows. And there's his text over there and some th stones that he then throws around the room to rid it of uh, spirits. Okay. Lama himself, called Sultim. Uh, the other ingredient that's essential is uh, the horn of a yak. So go out, find a dead yak, uh, knock the bone out of the inside of the, uh, the, the horn and get it ready. Then also go to the middle of the, the main street and dig a hole in it. Uh, a triangular pit at a crossroads. This is all in the main street. Nobody seems to bat an eye at And then he has this uh, the folded image, again held in berberous wood, and the ritual begins. Now, these rituals have a rather particular structure. Uh, they're not Here, Bonpo rituals tend to differ from Buddhist rituals. They begin with the recitation of a myth, and to this extent, they're not dissimilar, and this point is an important one, they're not dissimilar to the kinds of rituals that you find amongst some um, Tibeto-Burman-speaking shamanic uh, populations in the middle hills of uh, Nepal, so in other words, the immediate neighbors. In this kind of ritual, typically, uh, the origins of in this case, vampires, are related, uh, the story of uh, the original conflict, how it was resolved, and so forth. And then that, um, uh, what should we say, archetypal picture is somehow grafted onto the particular situation uh, that's going on uh, in the world. And so he begins his liturgy, and here I'm going to read you um, an excerpt uh, with a lot of abbreviations, because it's, it's a very long thing, um, uh, from this, uh, this liturgy. So it begins with a description of hell, you know, boiling and bubbling and acid fumes and so forth. And it says, in a place such as this was the father of the vampire, named Yakshakartikar. And the mother of the she, uh, the vampire, was named Low-Cast Poison Lips. 
The mother prayed for a daughter, and she bore a daughter, a vampire, an ill-omened daughter with upper teeth, teeth that had grown while she was still in her mother's belly. The father was enraged and flung her into a pit of ashes. Her mother looked after her. The father gave her a name, ash-coloured girl who was buried. The mother gave her a name, black raging woman, risen corpse. Her brother gave her a name, lovely, uncared-for girl. When she reached the age of nine, she said, I shall go to the land of the humans. So she disguised herself as a young woman, wearing silken robe and jewellery, and she set off. The hero of the Bon religion is somebody called Shemrab. I have to introduce him at this point. Um, he is similar, according to his biographies, in many, way, in many ways to the historical Buddha, uh, because the biographies are unquestionably related. But he also has certain very distinctive features. And in this kind of literature, he doesn't really have that transcendent Buddha quality that you find in the later texts. Uh, it's something more of... Uh, a swashbuckling adventurer who goes out to right the wrongs in the world, very often by violence. Shenrab was travelling down to the realm of the demons. He too had disguised himself as a young man with a golden crown, riding a white horse. They met on a narrow trail at the edge of the boiling poison lake of the demon realm and the black demon crag. All this is being sung, according to a, a litany. They didn't recognise each other, and she asked him who he was, and where he was going, and what his clan was. He asked her who she was and where she was going and what her clan was. He doesn't tell her, you see. I'm going to the world of humans to slaughter a hundred men, she says. I'm going to steal the children of a hundred women, and I'm going to snatch the souls of a hundred children. I'm going to bring harm to all humans. And then he reveals his identity, and he says, well, actually, I'm going to the realm of the demons from which you've just come, and I'm going to kill all the males, and I'm going to capture and enslave all the females and I'm going to eat all their children. And I'm not going to spare you either. And he seizes her by her lapels, and he grabs his dagger, and he's about to stick his knife into her. And then she starts begging for her life and says, oh, I won't kill you. Um, uh, sorry, uh, I, I promise not to go and, and harm human beings. And he says, OK, I won't kill you. There are details here which I'm intentionally leaving out, which I'll come back to later. He says, from your clan, I recognize you as my maternal aunt. I'm actually your sister's son, he says unheard of in Tibetan ritual texts, but anyway, we'll move on. Um, the term for maternal aunt, I'm going to introduce just two terms at this time. This is mother's sister, spelt in several different ways, but this will do. And uh, sister's son is this. So it's shu or shu and ten. Okay. The narrative goes on. Let us swear an oath, he says, with the divinity called takla as our witness. If ever in the distant future there is a time when the need arises, if I call, you must come more readily than a dog comes when it is called. If I seize you, be more malleable than sheep butter. If I lift you, may you be lighter than wool. If I tread you down, be more treadable than the earth. Do not renege on your oath, eating it as you eat food. I and you have a special uh, promise or bond. Should the time come when I need you, you must come without hesitation. So he spoke, and the aunt and nephew who had established this promise went their separate ways. That is why the vampires are constant, and why, if you call them, they come. Now, very important in any oath is the witness, uh, because the witness ensures the efficacy of the oath. And in this little ritual structure we have here, the thing sitting right on top is the original witness. Okay, so it has to be made and put on top. And when, as he is about to, summon the vampire from the depths, she must come because the witness is present. 
Um, didn't help matters when I was craning over this to see which page he was on, and I knocked the whole thing over. <laughs> and uh, it fell straight into his mug of beer, which then fell over and knocked over his mug of tea, and went all over the, the effigy. It was a catastrophe, but anyway, they're used to me by now. So there it is. Wiped it down. Doesn't really matter, he said. Okay. So this is where the... Oh, sorry, we missed a bit here. Yeah. So now phase two of this, uh, of this thing starts. Um, it's not exactly continuous with the first part of the ritual, but it's important. Scene changes. In a land called Miulkiting, there was a king and a queen. They had a daughter who married a prince. After one year had passed, a son was born. She had a dream, and she dreamed that her mother came. I shall be the nursemaid of your child, says the mother. And she dreamed that the mother took her daughter with her, or took her child with her, and left. The child was not reared into child. In, sorry, the baby was not reared into childhood. It died in infancy. It did not ripen into barley, but withered as green grain. It didn't become a bird, for the egg was broken. It didn't become a fruit, but died dried in the summer. And this dream is repeated a further eight times, so nine times in all, with a different category of kinswoman uh, of the princess. So the second time it's her elder sister, the third time it's her younger sister. On each, in each case, they go off with the child, starve it to death. After nine times, um, she gets a bit annoyed by this and uh, begins to rage and calls upon uh, the Lama to help her, uh, to get rid of these nine female relatives who are vampires. They've um, depleted the life of, their, of her children. So the narrative goes on, the, uh, it says uh, the priest must now uh, say at this point, and this is what the priest actually says, Ho, vampire, because remember he has the original pact with the, 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 the vampire who's now back down in hell, but the deal is that whenever he calls her, she must come to help. Vampire, come here, here to this place to which you're invited. Subdue these vampires and dispel these obstacles. Uncared for one, my aunt, listen to me. The time has come when I need you. Don't sleep, aunt, but rise up. Are you not sad down there in the darkness? Uh, cross the nine passes, listening to the rumble of the thunder in the sky, and come. Come into the shelter of this five-colored rainbow. Come under these gathering clouds. Come and sleep in this conch-shell house. Come eat this buttered flour. Come and drink this buttered beer from the ladle. Come chew and munch on this meat. Come and open this egg that has no opening. Come singing and dancing. Come and chat as aunt and nephew chat. Come and honor the words of our original promise. Story goes on. The demoness, the, the vampire, is uh, down in hell, and she hears uh, this uh, litany, and she has a dream that she is doing precisely this. She's sleeping inside a conch shell house. She's uh, uh, drinking wonderful things, meeting friends. She's very lonely. <coughs> and uh, so she wakes up, and then she leaves hell, and on the way she meets her mother. And she tells her mother the wonderful dream she's had and says, I'm going to the realm of the humans. And the mother says, oh, you idiot, don't you realize, you never listen to me, um, you've been tricked. Uh, the thundering of that great dragon in the sky is the priest's drum. Sleeping inside a conch shell house was you sleeping in the pale skull of a dog. Sleeping beneath a dark cloud was you being wrapped up in a black goat hair sack. The rainbow colors that swirled about your body, that was you being bound with the wool of five colors. Eating buttered flour, boiled in butter, that was you eating your own flesh. Drinking buttered beer, that was you drinking your own blood. Chewing, crunching, that was you gnawing your own bones. Drinking the soup, that was your intestines being twisted and torn into pieces. 
looking for the egg that has no opening, that was you tearing open your own heart. That delightful singing and dancing, that was the enticement of your deceivers. My daughter, that was not a good dream, that was a terrible dream. Rather than you should flee, uh, rather you should flee. Rather than fleeing, you should hide. But of course there's no hiding place because the Lama has set himself up with these effigies of the skulls which can go to any of the environments in which the vampire tries to hide. So the skull of a yak for the pasturelands, the skull of a tiger for the forest and so forth. No hiding place and she is caught. So this is her being summoned up. You summon vampires up by closing all the doors and whistling as you summon any ghosts. And once she's in the house, then she's imprisoned. She's imprisoned in here with uh, cards of four ferocious protectors, uh, sort of policemen, as he said, uh, around her to stop her getting out. Uh, and then he produces his ritual implement, this long dagger, which you can't really see, uh, to prepare to kill her. And the first thing to be killed is this effigy, which has the, the life flame coming out of its belly. So this is her lying there, now embodied by the original vampire. And he stabs at her with the, uh, the dagger several times as he chants his litany and puts out her lights. Uh, the next thing to be killed is this embodiment, uh, the triangular um, piece of paper with the imprint on it, surrounded by what she thought was uh, this lovely light of rainbows, but is actually the chains that bind her. And uh, the son-in-law of the house is called up. I don't think that's significant, by the way, in the present case. Uh, he is called up to um, kill this version. So he puts on all his finery, gets his bows and arrow, bow and arrows, and um, shoots her at point-blank range. Not a chance. <laughs> and then, as if that were not enough, he whacks her with the back of an axe uh, several times. And then she is stuffed into the horn of the yak, felt by a monk. So everything here, all the relevant stuff, um, the effigy uh, and so forth, but not the feathers, the llama keeps those, they're quite useful. Um, everything is stuffed into the horn, um, wrapped up with the black goat hair sack, as her mother predicted, uh, and then sealed with sealing wax. So everybody in the house puts his or her seal on it, including finally the llama. And then uh, a, uh, an indigent neighbor is brought in to drag her around the floor in the four directions and stamp on her while she's in this prison, beat her on the floor a bit. And then she's taken outside. There's an anti-clockwise dance performed around this pit, and eventually the llama drops it in. And the basket of other stuff is immediately uh, thrown into the hole. Uh, the hole is then beaten down with rocks, uh, very hard, covered over again, and a fire lit on top of it. And that's the end of the vampire. Okay, So that's the ritual in brief. The whole thing lasts about two days. Um, uh, the, uh, the liturgies are very long, and the, the ritual is a bit more complicated. Okay. Why, is he, why does he want to abandon this ritual? What is his problem with this ritual? He gave me two reasons. The first one, he said, is that it's sinful to dig holes in the ground. Why didn't I find that persuasive? Um, he said, well, first of all, um, it can only be done in winter because it's less sinful to do it in winter. Because uh, they observe these rather ancient monkish um, precepts that uh, if monks dig the fields, then they're likely to kill animals, um, little animals, especially in summer. In winter, however, nothing is moving, so you can dig a hole in the ground without harming a worm. That's the reasoning. 
Why don't I believe that? Because, uh, first of all, he himself ploughs his own fields, so that's a bit unconvincing. Uh, secondly, here's a ritual that's being carried out in summer, erecting prayer flags, something that's done uh, every year. So the prayer flags are put on the prayer flag poles, uh, they're put next to the houses, and how are they held up? Dig a hole in the ground. Okay? So it's the same llama who's doing it, in fact. Uh, so we eliminate that as a plausible explanation. Um, the second explanation, he said, is that it's very sinful to kill the vampire. This is slightly more plausible. Uh, there is, generally speaking, um, a bodlerizing of Tibetan rituals uh, since uh, the Tibetans have come into exile uh, in 1959. Uh, really, to be out, oh, yes, so this is... So there's the first part of the talk, and the talk continues with the second part of the talk on episode 20 of this podcast. So I hope you've enjoyed listening to this, and if you would like to hear the second part, go and listen to it on episode 20. Okay, thank you. Bye.